a reading from the story of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp's martyrdom stands as one of the most well-documented events of antiquity. Polycarp became Bishop of Smyrna in 115 AD and may have been one of the original readers of Revelation as a disciple of John. Marcus Aurelius, emperor of Rome at the time, unleashed a wave of persecution against the Christian movement, including against the influential Bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was arrested on the charge of being a Christian, a member of a politically dangerous cult whose rapid growth needed to be stopped. Amidst an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on such a gentle old man and urged Polycarp to proclaim, Caesar is Lord. If only Polycarp would make this declaration and offer a small pinch of incense to Caesar's statue, he would escape torture and death. They tied him to a stake in the middle of the stadium. The proconsul urged, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king, who hath saved me? The proconsul again urged him, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Polycarp replied, Since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you express it, affecting ignorance of my real character, hear me frankly, declaring what I am. I am a Christian, and if you desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day, and you shall hear. Hereupon, the proconsul said, I have wild beasts, and I expose you to them unless you repent. Call for them, replied Polycarp, for repentance with us is a wicked thing if it is to be a change from the better to the worse, but a good thing if it is to be a change from evil to good. I will tame thee with fire, said the proconsul, since you despise the wild beasts unless you repent. Then said Polycarp, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished, but the fire of the future judgment and of the internal punishment reserved for the ungodly you are ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. The whole multitude, both of Jews and Gentiles, shouted out, This is the doctor of Asia, the father of the Christians and the subverter of our gods, who hath taught many not to sacrifice nor adore. The people gathered wood and dry matter from their workshops and baths. Polycarp was burned alive at the stake in the city of Smyrna in 156 AD. There was a farmer in a poor village. The villagers thought the farmer was well-to-do because he had a horse, which he used for plowing and transportation. One day, 
the farmer's horse ran away. And the neighbors came to the farmer and moaned his misfortune. But the farmer replied, we'll see. Several days later, the farmer's horse returned and brought two wild horses with it. And the neighbors praised his good fortune. And the farmer replied, we'll see. And the next day, the farmer's son attempted to ride one of the wild horses, and the horse threw him and broke the young man's leg. The neighbors moaned his misfortune, and the farmer said, And the next week, conscription officers from the army came and visited the village to sign up all the young men and take them off to war. But they rejected the farmer's son because he had a broken leg. And the neighbors praised the farmer's good fortune. And the farmer replied, The most important thing about your life is not circumstances. It is how you view your circumstances. The most important impact that is happening in your life right now is not what is happening to you, but how you view what is happening to you. You change the meaning, you frame that event and look through it a certain way and it changes the meaning of that event. This I know. Each one of us is going to need a frame in our lives to view the times of suffering that are to come because evidentially the most true thing I could say to you now expressed in the words of one of my favorite songwriters, Rich Mullins, who once said, there is bound to come some trouble to your life. Today, we're going to visit, go sit in the seats of a church in Smyrna. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Smyrna. We're going to talk about how they suffered. But after that, we are going to hear Jesus give one of the great gifts of Christianity, and I think one of the most overlooked gifts of Christianity, and that is this. Christianity and the relationship with Jesus helps us frame our suffering, and we need that frame because there's bound to come some trouble to your life. So, let's take our seat in Smyrna. Smyrna was, a, first of all, a port city. We have a map. It was just 40 miles north of Ephesus, where we were last week. We head north. We see it's modern-day Izmir, right above Ephesus, beautiful harbor city of about 200,000. It sat on the coast. It, it had everything you would, you would want in an urban center. It had a, the largest theater in Asia. It had stadiums, baths, fountains. It had uh, public libraries. It was a, a, a premier urban center in the ancient world of Asia. Uh, we have a picture. One of the, the main thoroughfare was called the Golden Way. As you can see, it was a mound. Mount Pegasus came up 500 vertical feet out of the water, out of the harbor, and uh, all the buildings, and there was a famous Acropolis on top. But around the city and that mound was uh, the Golden Way, which was uh, you know, like the Miracle Mile in Chicago or Central Park in New York City or um, could we say the 16th Street Mall in Denver? I'm not sure. But a, a famous 
visitor site that everyone wanted to see the Golden Way in Smyrna. It was golden for everyone except Christians. The other thing about Smyrna, and this made it not golden for Christians, is it was also the second city in Asia to be named an imperial city. It won and beat out 10 other cities to build a temple for Tiberius, one of the emperors of Rome. And thus it became an imperial city. And to be a resident in an imperial city meant that once a year, in order to live in that city, you had to go to public, uh, public altars spread around the city, offer incense to Caesar, and proclaim, Caesar is Lord, the God come down from heaven. And if you made that profession, you got your residence card. They think it was some kind of stone token that you would carry around with you on official city business. To, it was your proof of residency, like our driver's license. Well, the Christians could not say that. And thus, life for the Christians in Smyrna was difficult. Now, most people viewed that as kind of a patriotic thing, you know, like pledging allegiance, standing for the national anthem. Well, you can imagine what happens if you don't stand for the national anthem. It was a tough road and was not golden. In fact, Jesus now comes as we turn to the text and he describes what life was like in Smyrna and says he knows all about it. Here's the text, Romans, uh, Revelation chapter two, verses eight through 11. The, the letter to the church in Smyrna. To the angel in the church of Smyrna write, the angel was probably the messenger, the one who would either read the letter or carry the letter. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus describes the suffering that he sees in Smyrna with three words that we wanna point out in verse nine. He first of all calls them afflictions. And then poverty and slander are the result of the afflictions. It's an interesting word, afflictions. It's used, for instance, by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says about being single versus married. He says, I'm going to try and save you some pain. <laughs> he says, if you get married, you will suffer aff afflictions. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Uh, cowards. <laughs> The idea of affliction is an outward circumstance that causes inward anxiety. We all know that marriage can do that, those of us who are married, right? If your marriage is good, most everything else in your life is good and you can get through it. If your marriage is struggling, what? Everything else in your life is colored by a hard marriage. 
It's the idea of affliction, a, a set of outward circumstances that causes great stress internally. Do you know the other place where this word affliction is used is in John chapter 16. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he gives this kind of great verse that we often use for our Christian locker room talk, you know, and get out on the field and let's play ball. You know, in the, Jesus says, in this world you will have afflictions, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we say, yeah. There's a little context to this verse that we need. Just before he says, in this world you will have affliction, he defines the affliction or the source of it anyhow. He says to the disciples as they're about to wrap up this talk, I am about to go to the cross. And because I'm going to the cross and that will be such a scandal to you and so misunderstood and you won't be able to absorb it, you are going to be scattered in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, the source of the affliction is whom? Jesus. When we decide to follow Jesus and enter relationship with him, our life takes on a certain quality of afflictions. Now, I know we like to look at Jesus as the answer, and he is our king and our savior, and we are, where would we be without Jesus? But we also realize that when we say, I'm going to follow him, we are accepting a particular set of outwork circumstances that gives great stress on the inside. I mean, to illustrate, and we're not being persecuted at all from outside sources, but we voluntarily take on some hassle, don't we? Jesus wants to mess with your money. Jesus wants to mess with your marriage and your singleness. Jesus wants to mess with your friendships. Jesus wants to mess with how you work. Hey, I mean, every part of your life, the great Dutch uh, scholar, Abraham Kuyper, said there's not one square inch of life about which Jesus does not say, it is mine. That's a particular kind of affliction. But the affliction comes out, Jesus notices, because the, the Smyrna Christians are following him in two specific ways, poverty. It's actually the word for beggar, being a beggar. It's extreme poverty. Why? Well, if you go back to those public swearing-in ceremonies where you get your driver's license, if you didn't have a driver's license in that day, you could not be part of the union, the trade guilds. And most Christians struggled with employment in the ancient world because they didn't have the credentials that Rome required. And so to become a Christian was to accept a certain set of circumstances that would cause you economic despair. And then he says, you, uh, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not true Jews, but are the synagogue of Satan. Slander, broken relationships, social shunning, being put out of, of welcomed groups and clubs and organizations and just being shunned by neighbors, all of that part of the slander. This is an interesting expression, though. It needs some explanation of the synagogue of Satan. When Christianity began, you'll recall, it began in Jerusalem, and it was mainly a movement of Jewish believers at, at the start. And at this time, Rome was so frustrated with the Jewish people that they finally ended up giving them a pass because of the ancient stubborn uh, 
monotheism of the Jews, they did not have to say, Caesar is Lord, the God come down from heaven. Rome got tired of dealing with them and gave them a pass. So everyone has to say this but the Jews. So when Christianity began, it was kind of under the umbrella of the Jews, but as it began to grow and take off, the Jewish people began to look at Christianity and say, wait a minute, they're not Jews. I mean, they don't preach keeping the law as the way to be saved, and they talk about a crucified Messiah? That's blasphemy. You'll remember that the word or title Satan is, is literally means accuser. So what was happening is that the, Jew, the synagogues were actually accusing so-called Christians or outing them as Christians. That's what was happening. The Jews were turning Christians into the authorities so that they didn't have the cover of the Jewish privilege. And so Jesus acknowledges, I know your afflictions, I know the economic hardship you're facing. I know the social shunning that you now have to endure. And so, Smyrna, what I see your greatest need is, is that you need a frame now to view your life and your suffering. So I'm going to give you the frame through which you can view any hard event that's going to come into your life. And notice he says in the text, it is going to come. So here's the frame. It starts uh, in verse 9 uh, or 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. We've highlighted those. These are the two main commands in the text, the two main verbs. Here's what we're supposed to do. First, don't be afraid. Now, <laughs> Let's be honest, that's tough. I mean, we are afraid. We're afraid of things we can't control. We're afraid when we know it's going to hurt. I don't even think Jesus is there saying that if you have fear or being scared is wrong. In fact, if you read the Psalms, there's a lot of fear in the Psalms. But what you see in the Psalms and what I think Jesus is trying to say is to acknowledge your fear and then boundary it. Look through the frame. Take control of it. Do not be afraid, but be faithful. In other words, what Jesus is after is not for us to go around when we're afraid and we know circumstances, we could lose our job, we could get sick, whatever it is that's going to come into our life. He's not, he's not saying, I just, you just need to buck up, keep a stiff upper lip, get stronger, and power through. No, I think what he wants us to say is look through the frame because what matters here is not the level of your faith. What matters here is the strength of the object of your faith. Look at Jesus. And that will bolster your faith. So, do not be afraid. Be faithful. That's the first side of the frame. Who are you going to trust? Because you have to trust somebody. And the level of your fear will be related to the level of the object of your trust, how strong he is. So, don't be afraid. Trust. And then he's going to give Jesus this great picture of himself to Smyrna. And here's the frame. You have a sovereign king. Trust the sovereign king. You have a suffering king. Trust the suffering king. And you have a risen king. Trust the risen king. 
Let's walk through and see Jesus now as the sovereign king. It's back in verse eight when he gives this great title taken from the vision in chapter one. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. It's a, it's a language tool there called a merism. A merism is when you mention the extremes or the ends of the spectrum, the first and the last, in order to emphasize everything in between. So what Jesus is saying about himself is, look, I'm eternal, that's my lifespan. I was, I'm first, I'm last, and because I'm first and last, guess what? I get everything in between. Everything in between is mine because I'm first and last. I was out running the other day, and uh, you know, I hate running. I only run to practice my sermons or to, so I can still eat what I want, which is not working so well anymore. But Sometimes you get a story when you run, and I was running, and sure enough, one of you drove up behind me in your black car, like right up next to me, scared the bejeebers out of me. You rolled your window down, and you said, get in. (laughs) It was one of my good friends, and he was telling me that in July, he had a near-death experience, a severe health scare. And he's kind of been working his way through that. Of course, I gave him a hard time for not telling us, but... He, he said that because of this near-death experience he's had and because he's been reading Revelation, he's come to a very important decision in his life, and he had to tell me about it. He said, what I've come to realize is that, well, he's in his 60s, whatever time I have left, whether it's today or 20 more years, I understand that it's not my time. It's his time. His And I will do with that time what he wants me to do. He was rocked and moved. He knows the first and the last gets everything in between. And you know what everything in between is? The rest of your time is his. Jesus owns it. He's the sovereign king. But notice in verse 10 how we see him using his sovereignty to own our time and to make every square inch count. He talks about this thing. There's two interesting phrases. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Let's talk about that. The sovereign king is so strong and wise that he's even to take the, the suffering seasons of our lives and use them for his good and to display his power in our life. Notice this interesting phrase, the devil will put some of you in prison. We all know that the work of Satan, the accuser of the devil, is to get us to doubt the goodness of God. The devil's main ministry is to get us to be suspect when it comes to God, to make God suspect to us. And sometimes God allows that, we call those temptations, he allows the devil, and you need to understand, the devil, as Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. The devil does not have free reign or free run. Oh, he tries, but the devil only does what God allows him to do. He's God's devil. Sometimes God allows for his reasons the devil to come and tempt us. And that is a part of God's plan to make us stronger and it turns into a test. And as we uh, succeed in that test or endure or sometimes fall and get up again, well, however we do in that test, God is trying to display his grace and his power through our weakness. And that's the point of those tests. 
And notice that the, he wants Smyrnans to know that it's the devil that's going to put you in jail, but I'm still sovereign enough to work that out. Have you ever considered how much of Christianity comes from a jail cell? Where is John writing these letters from? Or where did he get the vision? Patmos. What was Patmos? A jail. It was an island used by the emperor to put political prisoners whom he wanted out of the general population. John was one of those. Half of the New Testament was written by a guy named Paul, and where did Paul write a lot of his letters from? Jail. So understand that most of the New Testament, the devil trying to put people in jail to shut the movement down, most of the New Testament comes from jail. How about the flow of Christianity? One of the most influential books in the English language has been a book called Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. Where did John Bunyan write this influential book? Jail, Bedfordshire Jail. How about a man, one of my heroes, and Brad Haykoop did such a great job of talking about this man in our staff retreat last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Lutheran pastor, Nazi resistor, he wrote some of his most influential writings and letters from the Flossenburg death camp. How about a, a man named uh, Martin Luther King? You may have heard of him. One of the letters that fueled the civil rights movement was written by the, from the Birmingham jail. You may have heard of a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who rocked the Iron Curtain by writing a, about the life in the gulags that got out to the Western world and began to see what was truly behind the Iron Curtain. How about a man named Chuck Colson who went to jail for his Watergate crimes and met Jesus in a jail cell? and began a ministry called Prison Fellowship, which has brought Jesus to the darkest spots of solitary confinement around the world in Asia, Africa, Central America, and the United States. And Jesus has saved some of the most lost people through the work of Charles Colson, who met Jesus in a jail cell. I'm suggesting to you that the word of God is not chained I'm suggesting to you that you are not captive to your circumstances, that God is at work in your circumstances, hard as they are, to display his grace and power in your weakness and suffering. I'm suggesting to you that every day you follow Jesus is Easter, and Easter means Jesus turns prisons into pulpits. That is the sovereignty of Jesus Christ who's running your life. There's another interesting phrase. The devil puts some of you into prison and then it says, uh, for 10 days. Suffer persecution for 10 days. Remember we've been saying that in Revelation there are 404 references, we think, at least, to the Old Testament. And so really what helps understand Revelation is to understand some of the Old Testament. And usually the numbers and some of the symbols, they're all from the Old Testament, and that is the case here. Persecution for 10 days. 10 days, 10 days, what's 10 days? Do you remember a prophet by the name of Daniel in chapter one and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You remember their story? They were taken off into exile, jail, uh, 
Babylon had captured Israel and carried off the young teenagers, the best and the brightest, and were going to employ them in the king's court. They got there, and I don't know, they were going to do their like CIA training, whatever branch of the government they were in, and they had to sit down at a table and all eat together, and the text says they have to eat the king's food. Now, to eat the king's food in that day was to basically ingest the king, you know, similar to our communion, you know, we're not actually ingesting Jesus, we don't believe, when we take communion. But in those days, if you ate at the king's table, you were literally ingesting the king and uh, proclaiming total allegiance to the king. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that. And so they went to their handler, who they'd gained some favor with, and said, look, we really can't in good conscience do that. Would you be willing to work a deal with us? What if we eat for 10 days? 10 days, we'll eat vegetables and water. And at the end of that 10 days, if we're not more tan, more smart, more athletically fit than everyone else, then we'll eat at the king's table. But if we are better after 10 days of vegetables and water, then you'll let us obey God. Guess what happened? After the Daniel diet, they were like the best and the brightest. In fact, what's interesting in the text, it says, so after the 10 days, they were 10 times better than all the other wise men in the court. 10 times better. My point here is this. We, when we're in these times of testing, God determines the outcome, and he also determines the duration. God knew exactly what was needed for Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to endure this time to get them to the place where he wanted them to be. God is not only over the outcome, he's over the season and duration. The problem is that's very difficult to see because we have to live through these seasons of temptation and testing one circumstance at a time. I was thinking that it's like eating a muffin, right? We sit down and we eat a blueberry muffin we just know everything's worked together and we eat it. Uh, imagine if you had to eat a blueberry muffin the way we have to endure trials, one circumstance at a time. I tell you, it would either be bitter or boggy. I mean, imagine sitting down and just eating a spoon of salt, three spoons of baking powder, bitter. Then you have to eat, you know, a stick of butter and then f- four eggs, boggy, and then you get a blueberry. Isn't that life? Bitter, boggy, blueberry. Bitter, boggy, blueberry. That's how we have to live it. It's sometimes so hard to see that there's a baker involved. And he is putting in the right elements at the right time. And most importantly, putting it into the timed heat. And in the end, you become a blueberry for the culture to consume. A blueberry muffin. Hold on to the baker in our seasons of trial. So we trust that God is sovereign. That's our first part of the frame. But God is also suffering. We go back to verse nine and we see the suffering king that Jesus reveals himself to Smyrna. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander of those. I know, I know, I know. How does Jesus know? Because Jesus left heaven to come down and live our afflictions, our poverty, and our slander. He knows when you get to a season of suffering, guess what? Jesus is already there. He knows your suffering. 
because he has lived your suffering. Came across a great article I read on the, the challenge and the, the loneliness of the single life, of how hard it is to be single in our culture. And it, it, it captures this. It, it taps into this idea that Jesus didn't just give us heavenly platitudes from heaven. He came down, and he came down to a garden where everything was there. And Jesus was afraid, but he brought his trust to know that God still has a good plan, that God the Father is still good. He had to make that decision and move forward. And all of us in our suffering have to make that decision that no matter what happens, he's still good. And he has a good plan. Sometimes that's hard to do with the circumstances that are going on in our life. And Paige Benton Brown has this article. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs where she begins to wrestle with trusting in a suffering king who, who knows how hard it is. Uh, she's, uh, the, point, the, the article was written uh, after she was asked to be a bridesmaid, she was in her 30s, asked to be a bridesmaid in her younger sister's wedding. I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new coming wear, corning wear. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding No. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. Accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers God has not given to our list of whys, but rather on celebration of the life he has given I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God has so, is so abundantly good to me, because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. The psalmist confirmed that I should not want I shall not want, because no good thing will God withhold from me. But I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. Not my will, but his be done. Until then, I am claiming as my theme verse, if any man would come after me, let him. <laughs> we trust in a sovereign king who's controlling outcome and duration of seasons of suffering, and we trust in a suffering king who knows what it's like to experience affliction, poverty, and slander, and singleness, and marriages, and And then lastly, we know a risen king. Back to verse eight. Notice the title again, the first and the last, who died and who came to life Again, And then it says in the end of verse 10 into 11, because he died and came to life, at the end, he's waiting for us to crown us with the crown of life 
the victorious one. And we will never have to experience the second death. The second death is the end of, of the world, the end of, of existence when people are separated from God. And the one who follows Jesus now will never have to experience separation from God. Never. There will be face-to-face fellowship, and guess what? (laughs) It will be on the golden way. Face-to-face with Jesus Christ for the rest of our existence. That's why, in the middle of all this, Jesus said, Smyrna, you're rich. Notice he doesn't say, well, after you get through this hard time, it'll get better and you'll be rich. No, now in your brokenness and in your beatings down, you are rich because you are proud possessors now of everything that can't be bought and that you will never, ever lose. As the great martyr missionary Jim Elliott says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Polycarp, he was burned at the stake. He was the first or second or third pastor in Smyrna. The witnesses said that when he was in the, the, the stake and the fire was going around, they described the fire as like sails in the wind. In other words, it was fluttering all around, but the fire would not catch. It would not catch on Polycarp. So finally, in frustration and anger, the executioner threw his spear at Polycarp, and that's how Polycarp died in the midst of the flames that wouldn't touch him. Threw the spear and Polycarp died, and then the flames came on him. And the witnesses said that it didn't smell like human flesh burning, it smelled like bread baking. And they said that when his body burned, it looked like gold and silver in the furnace. I'm suggesting to you that Polycarp was gold that he is rich, that Smyrna is rich, that Waterstone is rich. Some of you are being severely tempted by the devil to doubt the goodness of God. Some of you are being tested and you're sick of it. I wanna ask any of you who are extremely suffering this morning to do something courageous. In a moment, we're gonna sing our closing song. We're gonna invite you to the front. We have up here olive oil. Do you know the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus wrestled and tried and, and, and trusted the goodness of God? Gethsemane actually means pressing. It was an olive press. Jesus was crushed. We want you to bring your crushing circumstances and meet Jesus. We'll have people down here. If I can invite any elders, any, any staff in the room, just stand here. They're gonna e- either put it on your forehead if you want or extend your hand for the palm. They're gonna put the cross on there and they're gonna say, Jesus, be with you in your suffering. If you wanna bring your suffering to Jesus and just tell him that you're going to trust him and you're gonna hold on and you are acknowledging him as the sovereign king, the suffering king, the risen king. Bring your suffering to him and meet Jesus in this moment, in your suffering. So I wanna read an invitation to do that and then we'll sing and you can come at any time. Here's the lyrics from that song by Rich Mullins. I think it's a great invitation to come. 
There's bound to come some trouble to your life, but that ain't nothing to be afraid of. There's bound to come some trouble to your life, but that ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life, but reach out to Jesus. Hold on tight. He's been there before, and he knows what it's like. You'll find he's there. Now, people say maybe things will get better. People say maybe it won't be long. People say maybe you'll wake up tomorrow and it'll all be gone. Well, I only know that maybes just ain't enough. When you need something to hold on, there's only one thing that's clear. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life, but that ain't nothing to be afraid of. I know there's bound to come some tears up in your eyes. That ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some trouble to your life, but reach out to Jesus. Hold on tight. He's been there before. He knows what it's like. You'll find he's there.